We're going to be uh, in Gala- all over the place, but starting in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you just to kind of put your thumb there. Um, and as you're turning there, just let's, as we do, um, let's just take a moment to be silent and to invite the, the Spirit of God to speak to us. We believe that God is a speaking God, that he speaks to us uh, in his word, by his spirit. Um, and so we want to just kind of surrender. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you just to, as we do, kind of breathe in and just breathe in the grace and the, the mercy of God and breathe out cares, anxieties, distractions, worries. Just take a moment to ask God, God, would you speak to us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good father who desires to give good gifts to your children. Would you, by your spirit, speak to us? Would you just enlighten our minds, inflame our hearts, empower our hands to apply the things that you want to say to us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our scripture reading this morning is Galatians 5. It is every week uh, here during Easter tide until the end of May, Galatians 5.22. Here's what Paul says to the churches of Galatia. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, some of you uh, may know if you're reading along here in your linear types that we skipped peace. So we're going through the fruit of the Spirit together. We skipped peace. Uh, we did that purposefully a couple months ago uh, in our series on emotional healthy relationships. We spent an entire sermon talking about becoming peacemakers. And if I were going to preach a sermon on peace, it would be that. So I want to encourage you to go back. I think it was January if you're interested in learning about what it looks like for us to uh, become peacemakers, as Jesus says. Uh, but today we're actually going to be looking at patience. And I would say of all of the different components of the fruit of the Spirit, remember it's one thing that God is doing together. They're all interrelated. So if you want to become loving, you have to be patient. If you want to become joyful, you have to be loving uh, and self-controlled. They all go together. But uh, as we separate these out and look at these uh, in these sermons, uh, of all of them, by far, the greatest area of pain and opportunity for growth in my own life would be this one. If I, had a, uh, if I had to take a children's movie that best described my inner life, well, it'd probably be two, but um, the one that first comes to mind is the movie Cars. If you've not seen the movie Cars, uh, I saw it many, many times, four children. Uh, there's a, uh, it starts with him like, like th- these words, speed. And it's about a, a, a kind of a car, uh, you know, kind of brought to life. And, and, uh, and the, the main character's name is Lightning McQueen. And his entire mode of existence is one of speed, like how fast can I go? And not just on the racetrack, but it even spills over into his relationships with other people. And, and uh, the, the kind of the, the funny um, irony of the movie is he gets paired up with, he meets this character called Mater, who is the exact opposite of speed. He is slow, right, and inefficient, and bumbling and goofy. And so really the movie more than about racing is about the relationship uh, between a fast-moving, fast-talking, fast-racing Lightning McQueen and a slow mater and him coming to learn about the value of patience in his relationships. Now, I don't know if you struggle with patience in that same way, but I know that we, we live in a cultural moment that is very impatient, Right, uh, people in describing um, 
American culture, one author calls uh, America a kind of cult of speed. We, we worship speed and efficiency and getting things done quickly, right? Like it's a virtue to move at a fast, intense pace. Like I, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it, it's funny listening to non-Americans describe American culture, uh, but this guy's an Aussie. And he was talking about one of the first things when he's a pastor, when he moved to the States, is he noticed there's this strange intensity like a revolutionary spirit and an intensity that characterizes Americans. Like he, just, he was talking to another Australian. He's like, if you move to America, you need to know these people are impatient. They are intense about everything. And particularly, he says, politics. So we, we kind of make a virtue out of progress, out of productivity, prosperity. And of course, in a post like 2007 iPhone world, this is just kind of our, our mode of being, right? Everything's been accelerated, and so we live with this fast pace. We live not only with a culture of speed, but one of kind of a, a chronic anxiety. Um, many of you know one of my favorite, I've talked about this uh, guy before, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Edwin Freeman. My favorite books uh, in leadership is a book he wrote uh, in the 1990s called Failure of Nerve. And it's kind of become more popular over the last several years, but it's been around for a while. And Freeman was a rabbi, and he was a therapist who basically took uh, family systems theory and he began to apply it to not only families, but organizations and to society as a whole. And in The Failure of Nerve, he kind of compares uh, the modern American scene. Again, this is kind of pre-internet, pre-iPhone even. Uh, but he's comparing uh, kind of uh, 20th and 21st century America to uh, the late Roman Empire, like in the 5th fifth, fifth century. And he says that our cultural moment is one that's characterized by what he calls a toxic anxiety. He's like, it's like imagine a room full of gas that's just waiting for a, a match to be lit. Like if you have that imagery in your mind, that's, that's what it's like to live in contemporary America. And he says what it's leading to is this regression in, in ways that we don't often see. So we're, we're prospering in certain ways and progressing in some ways and we're regressing in some of the most important ways as a society. Here's what he says. Western culture has become so chronically anxious that our society has gone into an emotional regression. The anxiety is so deep within the emotional processes of our nation that it's almost as though a neurosis has become nationalized. Societal regression is about the perversion of progress. At the same time that a society is progressing technologically, like we could look at medicine, we could look at science, we could look at a lot of areas, finance, financial prosperity, and say, yeah, we're progressing, but he said at the same time, we can be regressing emotionally. And by emotionally, he's talking about kind of the, the inner reality, the soul of us as individuals and as a society uh, that impacts our, our ability to relate well to one another. He, he lays out, and, I, and I'm not going to do this, we've talked about this before, but he lays out kind of uh, what, he, what some people have called the vicious cycle of a, of a toxic anxiety, right? Like anxiety is kind of the canary in the coal mine of American culture signaling some, something deeper going on. And he, and he talks about this vicious cycle of what has been called reactivity, this vicious cycle of reactivity. And so we live in this anxious moment characterized by almost incessant reactivity, right? And so there's these intense emotional reactions. Something happens in society, right? And immediately, especially within an age of social media, there's an immediate like um, pressure to respond with outrage and anxiety and fear and shame. In other words, what he's saying here is we are easily triggered in our relationships with one another. 
Like, I don't know if you're into, like, crime shows. My, my family loves to watch crime shows. My kids love crime shows. Uh, I, I, I attribute that to my wife. She loves crime shows. She's somewhat like an internet sleuth. Um, and so she loves to track down crime. But it's amazing when you watch, like, the first 48 or you watch Court Cam, some of these shows, um, how just, like, easily triggered people are. And the police, as they're talking about their work, they're like, this blows my mind that a person was killed for this reason, the small thing. And there's this intense response. And then not only is there an intense response, then there's a counter response and a counter to that counter. And there's the escalation of violence because we're so easily triggered by other people. Friedman would say it like this, highly reactive families are a panic in search of a trigger. And so we're, we're so quick to um, overreact to a perceived injury or hurt to take all disagreements so seriously and to brand the opposition with all of these kind of personal epithets, right? Like this person's a chauvinist if they do this. This person is ethnocentric. This person is homophobic. This person is a greedy capitalist, whatever it is. We just throw out these labels and we're in this constant cycle of reactivity all the time. I mean, if you feel this on social media when something big happens, as a pastor, I'm always like, man, like, do I need to respond? And when do I need to respond? And I feel this thing to be talking all the time to all these different things that are happening. It's hard to know when to be silent and when to speak. We feel like we're constantly pulled into a cycle of reactivity. The, the second thing he mentions is, is then that kind of gives way to a herding mentality, right? Like this mob mentality, because we're so hyper-connected to one another, not just through technology, but emotionally, there's a kind of fusion that takes place. And so we're always kind of getting caught up in the mob mentality and feeling like we have to react and respond. And, and then there's blame displacement. We begin to blame external forces, right? It's never me, it's always them. It's always the other. It's always this person, this group, right? And we're quick to make enemies. And we get gridlocked kind of emotionally and relationally and culturally. And that leads to what he calls the quick fix mentality, right? Because we have such a low threshold for pain, because we have such a low resilience in the face of anxiety, it's hard for us to hold pain without either anger and outrage or apathy and indifference, which are both characteristics of impatience. The focus becomes on quick fix solutions that solve symptoms rather than dealing with root issues. And then finally, he, he says it leads to a lack of differentiated leadership. It just leads to leaders, politicians, uh, parents, like those who are leaders in the social systems, becoming anxious and non-differentiated. They can't step away from the crazy and the chaos, and they themselves become emotionally immature and anxious as they get swept up into the system rather than being able to step back and have the critical distance necessary to lead with what he calls a non-anxious presence. Now, I don't think we need all the theory to tell us that that's like how we've lived for a long time. But particularly, I think we've seen that in the last year. I mean, think about how many things have happened in the last year. Just think about your own family, right? Like something happens. And then I don't know if you, your families do this, but like, do you guys do like family group threads? All of a sudden, somebody drops an article on the family text thread. And then all of a sudden, you're like finding yourself like reacting internally. Like, I can't believe they just put that out. And so you need to respond and make sure they know where you stand. And so you react to the article, you react to the link, you react to the event. And then what happens? Everything de-escalates, right? Oh, okay, yeah. You convinced me with that argument. No, like everything escalates. And it continues to escalate. They respond to your response, counter-response to counter-response. And we find ourselves exactly in the situation that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5. Just 
writ large on an entire society. Here's what he says. Be careful that you don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Life apart from God, he says, is so obvious. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy. And and things like this, he says. This is not meant to be exhaustive. So here's what we need to see about impatience. Here's what we need to see about hurry and reactivity. It's not just like a character deficit. It's not just a benign thing that's like, oh, I wish I could be more patient. I'm I'm an impatient person. The result of impatience, when it's fertilized and the seeds of that begin to grow, is violence, right? So when we are impatient, we are learning a way of being in the world that does violence on our souls and eventually leads to violence out in the world. So we get hung up in these cycles of reactivity. And the question is, how do we break this vicious cycle of reactivity? Because it's not just about speeding up and and hurry and all the kinds of things that we see. Like on the surface, that's the symptom. But the the root issue, the, the real concern that I have is how it impacts our relationships with one another. How it threatens our unity as a church. How it threatens our ability to be able to hold tension with each other and to wrestle with the brokenness of the world, and yet to do it in a way that's non-reactive, non-anxious. That's that's how we love each other, by the way. That's how we become joyful. That's what leads to kindness. That's what leads us to mercy. That's what leads us to a way of gentleness. The other things we're gonna see here. So I would argue patience is kind of the, the axis, the anchor upon which these things spin in many ways. What does it look like for us to become a culture of patience, in a culture of reactivity. Let's talk for a moment about um, what patience is and what it's not. So um, there's two Greek words for patience. Um, one here in this passage we see, and then if you go to other passages on patience, you'll see the other words show up a lot. Um, the, the one word is uh, hypomeneo, okay? Hypomeneo. Um, and this is the word for being patient in circumstances. This is the word that you'll see used like endurance or perseverance. To persevere in the midst of difficult circumstances is hypomeneo. The word that Paul uses here, though, is a little bit different in Galatians, and this will show up a lot too. Um, It's the word macrothymia. Macrothymia. It's a compound word, right? Macro meaning big or long, and thymia meaning anger. So literally, it's a compound word that means long-suffering is how it would be used in the King James. If you grew up in church where you use like old school King James, long-suffering, it literally could be translated long-tempered or a long fuse. That's what it means to be patient. So here's the situation that Paul's describing in Galatians. You have a church with lots of difficult people, right? And, and difficult people come in all shapes and sizes, and there's a spectrum of difficult, right? So like, there's like annoying people. So Paul, like Paul's talking about that. How do we deal with annoying people? Do you know any annoying people? If you don't, you might be that person. Just kidding. Um, so there's like annoying people. Like this gets on my nerves. 
Then there's like people who kind of work against you and they just don't like you for some reason. They seem to kind of actively work against you. You know, it's just like, I like them, but I don't really love them. They seem to be kind of against me. Then there's people that obviously on the extreme end are abusive. They're harmful people. They're hurtful people. And so what do we do with difficult people? Paul invites us to be patient, to macrothymia them, to be macrothymia in the face of difficult people. And, and here's the thing that you need to understand. Um, patience, the kind of patience that comes from the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as like a natural temperament or disposition to avoid conflict. So sometimes we'll call people patient. We're like, oh, they're so patient. They're actually not. Like if you ever met one of these people, they fume on the inside, but they smile on the outside. They do the opposite externally to how they actually feel because temperamentally they like to avoid. So, so uh, patience is not avoiding conflict out of fear. It's not temperamentally, dispositionally nice. It's not indifference. Matter of fact, you can make the argument, as one author does, that indifference and apathy is actually the worst form of hatred. Because if you love somebody, if you care about them, you will engage them. That's, that's, that's where I've struggled in my life, is I tend to just kind of detach and be like, well, I don't, I don't care. I'm so patient. I'm actually not. Let me give you a definition of patience that I think uh, kind of pulls together a lot of the different themes that we see in Scripture. Patience is a non-anxious inner presence. So it's something internal that God is, the Spirit is birthing in us supernaturally that waits with God. And that's the key that I think separates Christian patience from none. It waits with God, on God, for God. It's waiting with God as he works out his redemptive purposes in his redemptive time. Waiting with God, a non-anxious presence, as he works out his redemptive purposes in his redemptive time. Now, remember what we said the very first week of the fruit of the Spirit. All aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are really internal things that the Spirit is doing as the life of God comes into us by faith, and by grace, we encounter the, the, the love of God, the person of God, the spirit of God lives in us, and he takes these internal realities and he begins to manifest them publicly. But they're all really just aspects of the character and the nature and the work of God, right? And so what I want you to see here is that Paul is not inviting us to do anything that God himself is not already doing in the world. He's just saying, look at what God does in the world. Look at what God has done with you and then you're gonna to start to live that way and reflect more and more that characteristic of God as you become like him. Think about a child, right? You, you reflect your, your family characteristics, your family DNA. What, what kind of gets modeled with the parents tends to be kind of lived out with the kids over generations. Now, what's interesting about when you talk about the patience of God is that a lot of our culture and even some churches will caricature God as kind of reactive, vindictive, abusive. I mean, how many times have you heard this? God just smites people. Like God has a hair trigger and he just loves to just blow, he's like Zeus. He's just up there with lightning bolts ready to rain down on anybody that makes a mistake. And so we're afraid of God because he has a hair trigger because he's like my abusive stepfather, my abusive uncle, my abusive mother. But that's not actually what you see when you read the Bible. 
The narrative of scripture shows us a God who is long-suffering, long-tempered, with a long fuse. I mean, God's very first disclosure of himself. Matter of fact, I would say if you're not a Christian, probably what you're more upset about is not God's patience, but God's lack of patience. Excuse me, God's, you're, not, you're not upset with God's um, lack of patience, you're upset with God's patience. Why does he delay bringing justice? Why does he seem to delay dealing with the brokenness in our world? Very first time God speaks about his character. We read this a couple years ago in our series on Exodus. Exodus 34, remember chapter six, Moses says, show me your glory. God, what do you like? I wanna see your presence. I wanna experience your presence. So God takes him up on the mountain. And here's what God says about himself. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth. Now that isn't just like a brand. God is not like just throwing out his brand there, right? Like this is actually something he demonstrated right before this. You remember the story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible about intercessory prayer. Remember uh, the pe- Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law. And while he's up there, the people get impatient, waiting for Moses to come back down. Good thing we don't still do this as a church. Moses comes back down and they, they formed a golden calf. They've melted down the gold and they've built a golden calf. And God says, that's it, I'm gonna kill everyone. I'm bringing judgment right now. And what does Moses do? Moses prays to God and he says, God, you are a patient God. God, you are a loving God. You are such a gracious God. Don't do this. Please relent. Please change your mind, Moses says. Spectacularly, God listens to Moses. And depending on your translation, it says he relented from his anger or it says he changed his mind. Now, I don't, do what, I don't know what to do with that theologically because that doesn't fit my grid. God changes his mind, but he did. He was going to bring judgment. Moses steps in and introduces a, a, an idea of delayed judgment. God says yes, and he doesn't do it. And we see God doing this over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And here's what I want you to understand. Why does God do that? It's not because God is trying to be, um, you know, like, you know, sin, it's no big deal. Golden calf, come on, give these guys a break. They've had a tough, you know, time in the wilderness, just got out of slavery. Let's give them a break. Sin's no big deal. This isn't God being avoidant or indifferent or apathetic. Notice the purpose of God's patience throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. God works in redemptive time. In other words, he delays the moment of sin from the moment of judgment for this purpose, to create time and space. I'll throw this on the book screen so you can see this. To, to, to create time and space for growth, for maturity, for change, for repentance. That's why God delays. It's not because he doesn't get mad about sin. I mean, can you imagine being God? Like just for a second, like we get, I mean, just like think about the rage and the anxiety you experience as you look at social media and you look at all the brokenness. You look at, you know, teenagers being shot. You look at all kinds of things happening in our community. You look, about, you look at human trafficking. You look at abuse. 
You look at abortion, you look at all kinds of things that make you angry. And like only a little small amount of it is enough to just be like, I, I, I can't handle it. Now, multiply that by an infinity. Like God sees every sin, every injustice, every single day. Psalm 5 says that God experiences wrath and indignation every day because he hates that which is opposed to flourishing. And yet, the amazing thing about God is he doesn't destroy the world. Like what's most amazing to me is not that God judges, not that God responds to sin. That's what I would expect a good judge, a good father, a good creator to do. The most amazing thing to me is that we're not all dead right now. That God delays it all is unbelievable. If you've never read, just I want to encourage you, if you've never read the book of Jonah, it's a great like parable and metaphor for this. At the end of the book, Jonah's sent out to Nineveh and he tries to run from God. He's sent out to preach the good news of God's love and grace. He runs away from God. And like the whole book, you're just like, why is he running? What's going on with Jonah? In the very end of the book, chapter four, he finally sits down angry when Nineveh repents and they turn him from their sin. Jonah goes and he preaches and they turn from their sin. There's a revival in Nineveh, like this really wicked, you know, powerful city all of a sudden is in dust and ashes and they've repented. Jonah's mad about it. Like if I'm a pastor, that's a good day. Everybody repents and we have revival. But notice Jonah's response in Jonah 4. He says, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled. He says, I knew you were merciful. I knew you were compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. And the one who relents from sending disaster, that's the same translation, or changes your mind. So please take my life from me. It would be better for me to die than for you to, to be merciful and me to have to live to see you be merciful to the people I hate. I mean, if that isn't a word for our moment, I'd rather see them die than see them repent, which is why we're so impatient sometimes. God says, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who can't distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals? God even cares about the pets in Nineveh. God's purposes in waiting is to give us space, to give us time, to open up a redemptive time where we can grow and change and mature and repent and become whole. Without it, it would be impossible for any of us to become whole. 2 Peter 3.9 says the same thing. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to become to Repentance. God is so patient. Like, can you just, just take a moment and, and remember, like for some of you, your life before God. Remember, like, your most embarrassing, shameful memory. And I want you to think about God seeing you in that moment. And rather than judging you, rather than bringing wrath on you, God gives you grace. He gives you mercy. He says, I'm gonna give you time to change. And I'm gonna give you the resources to help you change. I mean, isn't that like such a gift? 
It's so rare in our relationships with each other. Most of the time when we do this to each other, the, the consequences are swift, right? It's, it's been often said, you know, we just, we just cancel each other. We're so quick to cancel each other. God is patient. Jesus was patient in his life on the earth. His whole life from his birth to his death to his resurrection was all about patience, right? 30 years in obscurity. Satan comes to him at the beginning of his ministry and says, hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Throw yourself impatiently off of this temple and, 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 and you know, force God's hand to rescue you. Jesus says, no, I didn't come for quick fixes. I didn't come to be reactive. He shows incredible patience with his disciples. Jesus slowed down. I mean, think about how slow Jesus' ministry was. He slowed down for the most vulnerable. Like a good test of patience is, how are we living among the most vulnerable, the most weak, those who don't add value and aren't productive and efficient? He slows down to make time. He makes time for women. He makes time for the demon-possessed. He makes time for the powerless. He makes time for children. I love the way that uh, Japanese theologian Kasuke Kiyama talks about this. He calls Jesus the three-mile-an-hour Jesus. (laughs) Jesus Christ came, he says. He walked towards the full stop. He lost his mobility. He was nailed down. He is not even at three miles an hour as we walk. He's not moving, talking about the cross. Full stop. What can be slower than full stop? Nailed down. And it's at this point of full stop, the apostolic church proclaims that the love of God to man is ultimately and fully revealed. God walks slowly because he's love. I mean, couldn't Je- like God have given Jesus like a hoverboard or like you know, a, a modern day automobile to move around and do all this urgent ministry if he wanted to? Of course he could have. But he makes Jesus walk everywhere. God walks slowly because he's love. If he's not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it's the speed of love. Jesus is born with patience in a woman's belly, comes to maturity in her belly, in her womb, for nine months. His whole ministry is one of patience with his disciples. With all the oppression and brokenness, the backdrop of his ministry, he is always busy but never in a hurry. He dies on the cross, the ultimate act of patience, right? Like, is there any more demonstrative symbol and reality of patience than the cross? God himself, rather than judging the world, takes judgment on himself, hangs on the cross, completely vulnerable, completely naked, completely exposed, completely weak, completely powerless. Unbelievable. Like, I I can never get over that. We should never get over that. The Holy Spirit is patient with us in our growth in Christ-likeness. 2 Corinthians 3, the spirit that Jesus gives to the church, the spirit is the Lord. The Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, as we look to Jesus and we look at God and his patience, We are being transformed. That's the word metamorphosis. 
We are being metamorphosized. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Day by day by day, we are becoming more and more like him, but it is a slow process that requires so much patience. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Let me just close, begin to close our time. How do we actually cultivate this in our lives? How do we actually cultivate this in our lives? We see it in the life of Jesus. How do we actually begin to live this way? Because I think a lot of us want to be more patient. We see this call, and yet, again, the cultural waters that we're swimming in encourage impatience. And can I be honest? The cultural waters of the church encourage impatience. We bring that reactivity with us into the body of Christ. We are not immune to that. Matter of fact, we are sometimes the most impatient people in the world. We have a sense of urgency about everything and we spiritualize it by saying, well, this is, this is the Lord's work. You know, like people are dying and people are being separated from God. We must do this now. <laughs> but here's what I've learned. I'm 40 years old. I'll be 41 in a few months. Here's what I've learned about life. Patience is critical to flourishing. Some of my biggest regrets as a husband, as a father, as a man, as a Christian have come when I have been impatient. All the things that I want for my life, I mean, my four kids are right here, my wife's are, all the things I want for them only happen by patience. And when I am impatient, and my family, they, they will tell you, I am so impatient. I walk fast, I breathe fast, I eat fast, I turn, put my key in the ignition, my foot is immediately on the gas, I pull out fast, I drive fast, I live fast, I talk fast, right? Like some of you are like, slow down. First thing our therapist told us a couple years ago when went to counseling was, can you just stop for a second? <laughs> Do you realize how fast you talk? You're overwhelming me. Nothing we love and value comes without patience. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says, love is patient. There's rarely a time on the other side of a reactive, broken relationship that I've experienced where I thought, you know what? I wish I would have gone faster with that. I wish I'd have been more reactive. No, every time as I look back, I'm always like, I wish I would have slowed down. I wish I would have given it more time. I wish I would have been long-tempered. In counseling, one of the things that we went through a, a kind of a breakup with uh, some peop, important people in our lives a couple of years ago. And it's still not resolved like the way that I want it to be. And one of the things that our counselor told us, told me, just like, man, hey, can you just slow down and create space? Can you create space for God to work? Can you create redemptive time for God to do what seems impossible right now? And I know that a lot of you are in that space. You're, you're feeling anxious. Things are broken. Some of you are anxious in your singleness. And you're just like, I thought I'd be married by now. I look around me and I see all, the, all my friends getting married. And you're impatient. And can I tell you some of the worst, some of the worst struggles in marriage I've seen are when people get impatient and they marry someone just for the sake of being married. I mean, there is a far greater challenge than being single. It's being married and being alone. It's being married to someone who doesn't love you well. You're impatient 
in a difficult marriage. You're impatient with your children because they're not turning out the way that you want or it's not happening as fast as you want. Maybe you have a child with a disability of some sort and you just, you're so frustrated, you're so impatient because the outcomes aren't there and you look at other families and you're like, why can't we be more like them? We have all kinds of impatience when it comes to politics right now. We have families dividing, unable to hold the tension and the anxiety and just saying, you know what, get away from me. I don't wanna have anything to do with you. We need patience. Patience was, in the earliest years of Christianity, the highest virtue. There's a great book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Alan Kreider, a New Testament scholar, says, the number one defining characteristic of the early church, the highest virtue that they wrote about more than anything else. This was, they wrote treatises on this. They wrote white papers on this. They debated about this one thing. It was patience. Three of the greatest Treatises, Tertullian, Augustine, and Cyprian, all North African, uh, non-white, non-Western theologians, wrote about patience. Christians believe that God is patient, that Jesus embodied patience, he says, and they concluded that trusting in God, they should be patient, not trying to control events, not anxious or in a hurry, never using force to achieve their ends. Just three quick applications in about five minutes. One, we must learn to internalize God's patience with us. When you understand how patient God has been with you, you will become a more patient person. To the degree that you are out of touch with God's patience with you, you will be impatient with other people. Great parable Jesus tells in Luke 13 A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. In other words, give me time. Give it time. Give it space. Perhaps it will bear fruit next year. But if not, you can come and cut it down then. See, that's the way that God works with us. Dr. Henry Cloud says it's three things that God does in his relating to us. It's grace and truth and time. Grace, truth, and time. Slow it down. Create space for God to work, for people to change, for people to learn, for people to grow. One of the more famous parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18 is the unforgiving servant. Remember, he owed this big debt to the king, a debt that he couldn't pay. The money was, sum is so large. And he he pleads for mercy. He says, you're a merciful king. Would you please forgive me this debt? And he does. And then remember what the unforgiving servant does. He goes out and he begins to shake down everyone who owes him money and throw them into jail. And at the end of the parable, the king comes and says, You wicked slave, I forgave all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and he handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Just ask you a question. When you mess up, when you sin, 
don't you want mercy from God? Every time. Yeah. And, and what do you say when you come to God or you come to somebody else asking for mercy? Well, you don't understand all the circumstances, right? We want all the complexity of our situation to be honored, right? That's how we approach God and other people. Well, here's the things that happened to me. Here's my childhood. Here's my story. Here's all that. I was having a bad day. I didn't get enough sleep, right? We do all that stuff with other people. But what do we do when it comes time to give mercy to other people? Oh, there's no complexity. It's black and white. They either are this or this. We reduce it down and we say they must be an evil person. We don't give any of the benefit of the doubt that we ask of other people. But one of the beautiful things about God is God takes into account all the complexity of our lives and he always gives a judgment and he always does it according to a timetable that honors the complexity of who we are as humans. Our motivations, our story, his mercy. That's how we've got to live to learn, uh, learn to live with other people, right? Patience with people flows out of patience with God. Matter of fact, if you want to know how much you understand the patience of God, I dare you to look at your impatience with somebody in your life right now. Think about the person who drives you crazy. Think about the most annoying person in your life, the person you don't want to spend time with, the person that you roll your eyes internally when they reach out and say, can we go for a walk and talk? Can we have coffee? Can we get together? Can you do this for me? I mean, that's and that's every day in the church, right? Like we're always surrounded with people that are going to annoy us and frustrate us because they're not moving according to our timetable because they don't do things the way we want them to do. And we should see that as an invitation rather than turning away from them and withdrawing relationship. We should see that as an opportunity to remember, oh, God feels this way about me. I might be annoying to God sometimes. You ever thought about that? Like I think about that. I'm probably pretty annoying to God. I get on his nerves sometimes with my stupidity. So as God has been merciful to me, I'm called to be merciful to other people. Secondly, um, we learn the, um, we don't have time, learn the impulses of a farmer. James 5 says, we must learn to be farmers. For those who are city folk like me and you grew up in, in city environments, farming takes long periods of time. We gotta slow down. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Here's what I know about farming. This is everything, ready? Farming's slow. Joel Joel tells me that, he grew up on a farm. Farming requires surrendering control. You don't have control of the elements. How much of our impatience is rooted in control and mistrust? I don't trust you. I don't trust God. I don't even trust myself, but something has to be done. I mean, when I'm at my most impatient, I am trying to control and manipulate people and circumstances and bend them to the arc of my life and my desires and my outcomes, not God's. We learn not to trust people, right? For good reasons. So it's slow. It requires surrendering control right? Like farming's a family business. You don't just do it by yourself. You've got to create space for others to enter in and help. That's one of the most amazing things about God's patience to me, by the way, is that he invites us into his work of redemption. You ever think about that? Like God creates the world. He could have done it perfect the first time. He turns it over to Adam and Eve and gives them stewardship and they mess it up. 
And he still redeems. He still works. Jesus entrusts his mission to 12 disciples, to millions of Christians who continue to mess it up. And yet, God is still patiently working through us. So my encouragement there is, can we learn to practice giving up control? A great practice for all of us is to practice surrendering control. Right? Like some of us are so controlling with our schedule. We wake up in the morning and our day is planned out to the nth degree. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a plan. But if your plan doesn't leave room for the vulnerable, if your plan doesn't leave room for holy disruptions, people coming into your life that are slow, the maters who God wants to bring into your life for a reason, you don't have time for them. You don't have time for your family. You don't have time for your children. You don't have time for the poor. You don't have time for the weak. You don't have time for the elderly. You don't have time for your grandparents. You don't have time for your children. Something's wrong. So how can I learn to surrender control? Control of my time. It's not my time. It's God's time. I'm his steward of time. So God, I wake up in the morning. For me, here's what this looks like. I take long, deep breaths, and I remember that I'm not even in control of my body. I breathe in, and I breathe out. That, for me, is an act of surrender, just to do that. And then I look out at my day when I'm in a good space, and I say, okay, God, what do you have for me today? Help me not to be so scheduled, so outcome-driven, that I don't make room for the things that really matter in life. Because I don't know what today's gonna bring. I don't know who you need me to be present to. But if I'm so focused on my control of my day and my time, I'm not gonna be available. And that's me being impatient. So I've gotta learn to pace myself, to have an abundance mindset, to pace myself the pace that God wants to move in my life, the three mile an hour God wants to move in my life. The last thing, and I'm not gonna explain it, but just I'm gonna throw it out there and have you read Romans 12 this week. Commit yourself to a lifestyle of non-retaliation. The number one thing in the early church that they were committed to as a result of this view of patience was non-retaliation and non-violence. Read it in Romans chapter 12. Don't curse those who curse you. Bless them, move towards them, love them. And as Tertullian, one of the great writers on patience says, let wrongdoing grow weary from your patience. Think about that for this week. What would it look like instead of us reacting to one another to create space for God to move, for God to work, for I to not feel the pressure that if I don't act, if I don't do this, nobody's gonna do anything about it. The reality is God will do something about it. He's promised, he's already done something about it at the cross, he's done something about it with resurrection and he promises one day he will judge the earth. He will make all things new. He will take care of every act of injustice, every act of sin. He will wipe every tear from every eye. And we must live with that in front of us if we are going to be non-anxious, non-reactive, non-judgmental, non-violent, non-retaliatory in a world that is constantly inviting us to an anxious presence in the world. Let me pray over us and then we'll take communion together as we come to the body and the blood of Jesus. This is where I hope you begin to feel the the weight of this. It's impossible. It's impossible to live this way apart from the spirit of God at work in us, apart from Jesus dying for us, showing us what it looked like to live a life of patience and then putting his spirit in us to bring about, to birth patience in us so that we can bless those who curse us. We can forgive those who wrong us. 
We cannot avoid those who are troublesome to us, but move towards them with patience and love and grace. This is what the body of Christ and the blood of Christ purchased for us. Father, would you make us these kind of people? Help us to be patient in tribulation, patient in the, in the midst of reactivity, be patient internally as we wait with you, as we wait for you, as we wait on you. God, you use our patience to bring about repentance. You use your patience in us to bring about love and mercy and joy in other people. So God, help us to get our eyes on what you are doing in our brothers and sisters around us, to be patient and to wait for you to work, to not push away, to not just move away, to not write people off, to not grumble against each other, to not say, you know what, forget them. I don't want anything to do with them. They're hopeless. God, we can never say that because you never say that about us. So God, give us your patience as a church. Make us a community of patience in a time of reactivity. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.